Meditation. 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 Depending on the quality of my mind. You know, there's good days and bad days. I mean, I feel like the waterfall of thoughts. Every now and then, a nice calm. I can't think of anything. This is Meditation in the City. The Shambhala New York Podcast. And I'm Dave, your host. Thank you for listening to the podcast. Okay, we've got a special guest on the podcast today. Lama Rod Owens was recently hosted uh, at the Shambhala Meditation Center of New York for a special talk. He was hosted by the center's Race, Racism, and Racial Inequality Group, as well as the Queer Dharma Group. And this was in the context of recent revelations of sexual misconduct in the Shambhala community, talking about self-care, talking about approaches to trauma and violence. And the discussion became pretty wide-ranging, getting into wider justice issues, white supremacy, racial trauma, forgiveness. When is it healthy to forgive? When is it too soon to forgive, frankly? And how to be a practitioner in modern society. Lamarad is among a rising generation of Dharma teachers. He is the co-author of the book, Radical Dharma, Talking Race, Love, and Liberation. And uh, this was a talk and discussion he had at the Shambhala Meditation Center of New York earlier this month, a couple of weeks ago. Visit our website, ny.shambhala.org, for all of our upcoming courses and weekend retreats, and for more information about our weekly Dharma gathering, a weekly drop-in Dharma talk every Tuesday night at 7 o'clock, which is usually the uh, content of this podcast, and to which you are invited, whether you have never been to the Shambhala Center before or you're a regular visitor, every Tuesday night at 7 o'clock is a great opportunity to meet your fellow meditators and connect with the community. Okay, here is Lama Rod Owens. I feel as if I want to just share this space with you, to mourn with you, if I can, to, to, to come and sit with you and sit together um, and to just kind of be with what's coming up for us. Um, you know, not just in the world, there's a lot happening in the world, but also just within your community here um, to mark the passing of something important, you know, and moving into something unknown. Um, but this is the working of impermanence. This is this is the teachings. The teachings are just doing what they're supposed to do. Is to show us that nothing is ever guaranteed. Nothing is ever stable. Um, and to embrace that, because it is in the embracing that we begin to experience our liberation, even though it sucks. And I want to be very clear about that. This isn't supposed to be fun, you know. But we can redefine our relationship to the work that we have to do and doesn't have to become suffering. You know? And we can deeply internalize the work that we have to do and we just become the work itself. We just become the doing. And there's no thinking, there's no procrastination, there's no hesitation or aversion. It's just this brilliant, profound stepping into change itself. And stepping into that change means that we have to let go of who we thought we were and who we want to be. A lot of us perhaps aren't ready for that work. But in a way, you actually don't have a choice because you're actually not the person you used to be. You know, if you think you are, you're just dealing with an illusion, you know, a lie. And that lie gets us into trouble over and over again. One of the really profound mantras that I've been teaching lately um, has been the mantra of, okay. 
You may not think that it's profound, but you're not using it correctly. That's why you don't think it's profound yet. <laughs> you know, saying okay doesn't, it doesn't mean you just kind of, you know, swoop it away. Okay is this profound way, this intense way of saying, you know what, I'm accepting this. Because I have to, because it's happening. So my heart is full of pain. Okay. If I want to transform my heart, I have to start with the hurt. I can't start with avoiding it and saying, oh, this isn't happening. This is just an illusion. No, this, it's, you're feeling this. You know, the world is messed up. Okay. You know, I'm afraid to be in the world. Okay. That okay isn't condoning, it's not celebrating, it's not a value judgment, it's just a basic acceptance of what's happening. That's it. That's all it is. But we have to start there if we want to change, if we want to transform, if we want to transcend, if you want to get free. Start with where you're trapped. You know? Start on the ground, not up in the air. You want to get to the ultimate, start with the relative. So I'm scared. I'm confused. Okay. You may have to say okay over and over and over and over again. And we all want something better. We want something else. And that's okay, too. Sometimes we don't get that. But I think if we do our practice, we get what we need. It may not be what we want. You know, there's a lot of things that I don't want. <laughs> you know? But because of entering into this path of working with my own mind and my own pain, I know that I'm getting what I need. So my teacher used to say, whatever happens, happens. Whatever comes, comes. I don't need anything at all. And, you know, I, I first heard that, and I was like, uh, you know. But as I get older, as I deepen into the path, what that teaching is actually reminding me of is that I need to trust myself. You know, that my next work is actually cultivating this trust in my basic practice. That I actually have what I need. Especially in times when I don't think I have what I need. I actually do have what I need. I wish for all of you is simply to be free from harm and to be free from all of the causes and conditions of harm to be free from violence, to be safe. For you, for all beings, even the beings that I don't like. This is really what compassion is, it's this deep communion with our own experience, first and foremost. It's the relationship we develop with our own sense of discomfort, the empathy. And then it's the realization that I am not the only person in the world that's hurting. That the people I consider to be the most violent and evil creatures in the world are at the same time the one, the beings who are also suffering the most as well. 
Sometimes my compassion may not be enough to consider even them worthy to be free from suffering. And that's okay. Because we can just have the aspiration that one day I want all beings to be free, even the ones that are the pains and the asses for all beings. May even that asshole be free. You don't have to mean it, but you have to start saying it. And compassion means that I don't just forgive everyone for hurting me either. Compassion means that I first and foremost take care of myself. I make sure that I have what I need. I make sure I have the resources in order to feel well. And once I feel well, then I will get to the business of taking care of the person who hurt me. But not the other way around. And I offer that because so many of us want to bypass our suffering and get to the forgiveness of other people because in a way we just, we think compassion is making people comfortable. When in fact it may very well perpetuate violence because the best thing sometimes to do is not to forgive someone, but to offer them the space to reflect on how they've hurt us. And some of us are conditioned to forgive instantly, to put other people's needs above ourselves and to say, oh, I am, even though I am the victim, I still have to look good and perform practice and forgive people. And I say, well, that's not really practice. It's really actually a form of violence that you're reenacting on yourself. I think one thing that Tara reminds me is to remember me. To remember my hurt, to remember my pain, to remember that I was the one that was hurt. That even though perhaps the person who hurt me, maybe I love them and care for them, but that doesn't mean I have to bypass my own needs to take care of them. It's the complexity of compassion. And it's only complex because we're the last people we want to take care of. So... Let yourself fill in the blank. Whatever that means for you, let yourself be pissed. Let yourself be hopeless. Let yourself be joyful. But whatever we let ourselves be, we're always reminding ourselves that we're not alone. That there are beings, that there are things in the world that are only here in this world to take care of us. And we have only to think about them and to remember them. That we're not alone in holding the pain and the suffering. We're not alone in our present apocalypse. But Tara, for instance, is only there if we can call on her. Our teachers are there if we call on them. Our ancestors are there if we call on them. The earth is there if we remember that the earth is there. Silence is our refuge if we just remember that. 
ultimately we can trust ourselves, but we have to train in trusting ourselves, but we can, that we have what we need. We are everything that we need. This is probably the primary teaching that I've been given in the lineage, in my practice, on my path, that I have what I need. I am everything that I need. I have only to remember that and to trust that. Because when I come to die at the end of my life, I will only have me. And quite frankly, Buddhism is the path of preparing ourselves to die. We sometimes forget that. I um, just want to offer some space for any questions or anything that you may have. And at any time you can take a break. I'm not gonna stop for a formal break because five minutes will turn into 15 minutes. <laughs> and then I'll be walking out the door. <laughs> so any questions or anything, you can ask absolutely anything that you want. I don't really mind. And you should be yourself as well. I think people are really interested in offering to the teacher. And the only thing I'm actually interested in getting from you is your authenticity. That's it. I mean, you can put some money with that as well, but that's not a prerequisite. <laughs> As, you, as one starts to get into longer retreats, um, how do you think it's possible to do a long retreat and still have like significant others or a significant other? And um, how can that be possible? Mm -hmm. Can you give mm -hmm. some advice on that maybe? Um, communication <laughs> is how we make that possible. Um, you know, it's... It's entering into relationships where we're articulating what's important for us. You know, being quite open and honest about perhaps your need for long retreat practice and having that dialogue to determine if, you know, your partner or partners or whomever, you know, the more you have, the more complicated it gets in general. <laughs> <laughs> just one partner but like one partner but like family members and things like that uh -huh. outside of mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I'm just checking you know I'm, <laughs> I'm a modern teacher <laughs> yeah <laughs> inclusivity um so yeah with you know if you extend that circle yeah um you know, just from my personal experience, again, it's communication. It's saying, this is what I value. This is what I need. If, if I am to survive this life, then you have to let me do this. You know, and if you're in, in, in particularly in terms of a, a partnership, you know, it's, you know, then it's, it's, it's communicating that need and seeing if that is also conducive to the needs of your partner, you know. And then being able to let that, that relationship go if it's not. Because that letting that relationship go is actually the practice of love and compassion. Um, is it also, for you, do you think that you learn things in deeper retreats that you can only learn in deeper retreats? Or were there other practices that you could have also utilized to get there? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's both. Both, um, I have, I have, and had the privilege to do long retreats, um, and it was transformative. It was life saving for me. 
Um, and But there are also other practices that got me into retreat, and there are practices that I do every day that actually sustain, you know, my practice, you know, so you don't have to, you know, this isn't like a prerequisite that if, in order to be a good practitioner, you have to do a retreat, but you have to do something, you know, and you also have to redefine what retreat is for yourself. And in, in this tradition, you know, Shambhala comes out of the Vajrayana tradition, the Vajrayana tradition, particularly as we see its roots in India, there have been many stories about just people in their lives who maybe they couldn't do a retreat, but they figured out a way to practice really seriously, you know, in their lives. You know, it may, you know, it may look like, I actually know people who are doing this now who are just like, they have families, they have jobs, but they prioritize and they can find a chunk of time every day, long time, you know, long periods every day to do their practice. And that's how you can really deepen. The intention deepens the practice. The effort deepens the practice. The longevity of a time and retreat doesn't necessarily correspond to deepening of realization. It's the intention and the effort that are the key. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm. The tower meditation was very powerful for me. It was also the first time that I have ever, that I've been introduced to a meditation with a goddess or god figure. Um, I found myself at, at one point, kind of just before you had us bring Tara mm -hmm. into ourselves, mm -hmm. being very uncomfortable with this compassion outside of myself and kind of imagining myself as Tara. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm just kind of curious about the the role of, of goddesses and gods in, in this non-deistic belief system. Mm -hmm. I'm a little confused, but I, I, I dug it too, so, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, I like that. Well, well, gods and goddesses don't exist. They, they're as real as we are, you know, so we always have that, that, that thought that this is, this deity is actually just me, you know, because it's not real. The deities aren't real there. You know, there are many ways to explain it, but one way to explain deities, particularly in tantric traditions, is that they are just personifications of energies that we're trying to relate to. Snap, I like that. I didn't, I didn't even try. <laughs> I'm not even trying yet, but I like that. <laughs> mm -hmm. And what are you doing here in New York? <laughs> that's, that's another conversation. <laughs> I'm like, I'm not in Colorado. Um, <laughs> I get around. Um, but um, so these are just ways that we're trying to relate to energies, you know, and our minds, our beings are expressions of energy. You know, so when we give rise to, as we say in the literature, give rise, but when we practice devotion or worship or we generate the presence of the deity, we're only just expressing energy from our own experience, from our own being. That's important to create, that's called creation stage. And then just as important, completion. The completion stage of that visualization brings the deity or the object of our visualization back to us to remind us where it came from. That merging of the outer you know, visualization with ourselves is the completion that continue, if we do it over and over and over and over again, we begin to dissolve the barrier between us and the other then it reinforces the power of our minds, of our, of our attention, and our awareness to shape the world within what's conducive to goodness and virtue. Thank you very much. I'm glad I asked that question. <laughs> yeah. No, that's important. This all, I mean, I did that. I was like, what is this? What are these gods? And I, came from, I came from Christianity. I came from the Southern Black Church. You know, and I was like, what is this? But I just, I felt compelled. I was like, I dig it, but 
I don't know <laughs> what's happening. But it's taken practice and study to get there. But in a way, too, I also say, yeah, Tara is real. I talk to Tara. Tara walks with me. You know, I pray to Tara, you know, but it's just it's circular. It's like always coming back to me. You know, it's all you have to realize is always me. I'm Tara. This is who I'm talking to. I'm talking to an enlightened version of myself. You mentioned at the very end of your talk mm -hmm. about uh, forgiving um, before you're ready, basically. Yeah. Is really a form of violence. Mm -hmm. And I think intuitively I sort of understand that, yeah. but I wondered if you could sort of parse that out a little bit. Yeah. Um, we, if we're forgiving before we're ready, so first of all, forgiveness means that whoever hurt me, I want them to be happy. Until I get there, I haven't forgotten, I haven't forgiven you. You know, if I just perform that, then I kind of enter into this really inauthentic relationship with the person who are, particularly if that person is close to me, you know, and then I kind of continue to perpetuate harm and aggression in the relationship, you know, in a way that I actually don't identify with because I've tricked myself into thinking I've forgiven this person, you know, um, when in fact I hadn't, just, I just haven't spent enough time dealing with my own hurt, taking care of myself, you know. I see so many people, and I got this idea, and I just, you know, I would just notice people who had experienced a lot of tragedy instantly going public and saying, you know, we've prayed for this person, and we've forgiven, and I was like, wow, really? You know? And we're not really trained to work with trauma, so it's like it's hard for us to recognize that and to hold space for it. So we just think, oh, I don't feel anything. <laughs> so I must be okay, you know, so they're fine. They don't have to do anything. But in fact, you have to give it space. You know, shock is really important to, to start thinking about. Shock can take a long time to, to, to wear off, you know. So I know if something really violent happens to me, I know that I have to like kind of wait. <laughs> You know, because I can just like, oh, it's okay, I'm fine. You know, I forgive you. You know, I, t I take your apology. The next day, I'm like, what the fuck? <laughs> you, know. <laughs> you know, yeah. Sometimes I, you know, then you, you know, sometimes people that we trust do something. It may not be towards us, but they do something, and it's really disappointing. And we're like, oh, well, I'll just forgive them. You know, because it's like. Somehow we think that being angry is disrespectful. When in fact it's a natural expression of being hurt. You know. We get scared of our anger sometimes. Yeah, we do, we do. We get yeah. We get scared of our reactivity and our compulsory relationship to the anger. You know, and it's the relationship that we have to focus on, and we can focus on our relationship to anger by acknowledging that we've been hurt. You know, we sometimes we just don't have the courage to do that. And so we just use our anger to distract ourselves. Instead of acknowledging that I'm hurt, I'm just gonna whoop your ass. You know, it's not conducive to the reduction of harm and violence in the world. Taking care of our hurt is conducive to reduction of harm and violence. That's something that most people are not doing in the world right now. Especially in New York City. <laughs> mm -hmm. I'm not going to get involved with passing the mic around and pointing out because I just get people upset with me. So. <laughs> See, you step out of the way, you know, like, I have nothing to do with this. <laughs> uh-huh. Thank you for coming tonight. Appreciate it. I, I was impressed by um, when you sort of talked about taking care of me first. Yeah. Um, how, how is that different from sort of it's all about me, yeah. selfishness, and yeah. egotistical yeah. needs? How, how do you... Um, I, mean, I get a sense of it, but it's yeah, interesting yeah, yeah. that 
the way you use me these yeah. days, it's sort of yeah. more pejorative, yeah. all about me. Yeah, yeah. So it's the difference between self-care and self-indulgence. So when I say take care of me, what I'm saying is that I need to take care of myself in order to return back into relationship with people. When I say self-indulgence, it means that like I'm focusing on me with no intention of considering other people and what they need. You know, so that kind of selfishness in terms of self-care is really about making sure that I'm getting what I need because if I'm not getting what I need and I start manipulating others around me to get my unmet needs met in ways that may very well be unconscious, you know, not that Shambhala has experienced that recently. It seems like that is some kind of theistic notion that you're going to get your needs met from out there first. Well, it's you, you first, well, you can. But first and foremost, you check out and see what can I offer myself? And then how can I put what I've discovered into conversation with the world around me in a consensual way? So consent meaning, I'm going to ask you, can you help me? Not demand it, not manipulate you, not force you into doing emotional labor against your will. You know, so knowing what we need actually helps us to practice a kind of consent and compassion with others around us. But if you don't know what you need, then you're just kind of out in the world forcing people to help you in ways that may not be conducive to what they need. Thank you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Hi, everyone. Um, this is more of a comment than a question. Yeah. Um, going back to the first question that we had, um, I felt like a need to speak. Um, there was a lot of laughter at the idea of people having multiple partners um, in the same way that people can laugh at the idea of people having homosexual or queer relationships, relationships that are non-traditional. Um, the laughter felt unwelcoming. Um, and I, I just wanted to make sure we're thinking about that. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for pointing that out. Mm -hmm. We always have to be careful about our reactivity to certain things, including myself as well. Um, you know, but those, you know, those responses always comes from the sense of discomfort and the ways in which we haven't developed a maturity around relating, you know, to practices, to ideas, to beliefs. Um, and that may seem really, you know, particularly in Buddhist traditions or just spiritual traditions, sometimes it's very hard for us to bring in different ways of being together onto the path um, because no one's ever showed us how to do that and no one's ever told us that it's okay to do that, you know. Um, but Buddhism, you know, I, I, I started practicing Buddhism. I just kind of thought, oh, like, there's no problem. I won't have the same problem I had growing up in church, right? And then it was just really difficult to realize that, oh, the, the world is reflected in the Sangha. The Sangha is a mirror for the world. And I just thought if I came into the door, all of that would be disrupted, you know. And it isn't. You know, so it goes back to how we were saying, you know, you have to accept what's happening in the moment, in the space, in the community. Um, so these are all things that we have to commit to working on more and more. You know, radical welcoming, radical communities where you can just be yourself and do what you need to do as long as what you're doing reduces harm and violence. That's really just the basic 
ethic in, in Buddhism, this reduction of violence. You know. And if we kind of get behind that, then we can actually see that there are many ways that harm can be reduced. You know, not just through what our teachers tell us or what we read in books or what's been modeled. There are so many other ways that there are other communities reducing violence that Buddhist communities can learn from. So thank you. Thank you for pointing that out. Um, I just want to acknowledge what you said, and um, it was brave to share. And I know for me, I was uh, I was at first laughing at the fact that we forgot, um, and sort of the acknowledgement of Ra, um, Lama Rod's teaching, a mod, being a modern teacher. But then I realized I'm also I'm uncomfortable with the multiple partner thing. It touches stuff with me. So I'm just sharing my experience, and I, I just wanted to say that, um, yeah, I can understand if it was hurt, if it hurt, if it was hurtful. I just want to say that it's such an honor to be in your presence. I've um, drawn such great inspiration from reading um, the Radical Dharma book, which I'm sure many people in this room have. Um, it's incredibly inspiring to. Um, receive intersectional teachings, um, spiritual teachings. And um, it's, I'm so uh, kind of fired up about it that I'm really interested in, um, well, I want, I want to know how to navigate a path of um, radical intersectional spirituality that's um, conscious and active. Um, I'm, I'm very inspired by Reverend Angel, and I'm also very inspired by you. I have um, an affinity for the Vajrayana teachings mm -hmm. just by what's in my orbit around mm -hmm. me. Um, but how does one craft a path or mm. like in terms of um, com committing more um, formally? That's one question. Mm. And then the other question is about these embodied liberation practices. Mm -hmm. I've been really inspired about your embodied, like really bringing that into conversation and into your teachings mm. about we show up in our bodies. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if... Um, you have meditations like the the Tara meditation mm -hmm. that are embodied practices. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Those are my two questions. Okay, um, yeah, and so yeah, thank you. Um, so how do we? So the first question: How do we craft a path? Um, I think that it's well for me. It's something that's been it's it's been the work of decolonizing traditions or decolonizing what I've been taught to practice. And that's kind of the space that I'm in now. And this is why so much of what I'm doing is so interesting, you know, and different because I'm having to explore what it means for me to practice as a black queer American man, not as a middle-aged Tibetan man who was my teacher, right? You know, those my primary teachers have been Tibetan. There's a little bit of feedback. You feel, you hear that? <laughs> okay. It's good. Yeah, it's gone away. Okay. Um, so I do that by asking myself, what is relevant for me and my culture and my ancestry? And for me, Tantra was, it felt familiar to me in a way that I couldn't articulate initially, but now I can say that it felt familiar because it was reintroducing me to the practices that were taken away from my ancestors in order to enter into this country to be property. Um, I, you know, when I was growing up, I never identified with Christianity. 
um, I just felt like so, so much of it was being taught and used to somehow further my oppression. Um, and so when I came into Buddhism, it was like, oh, okay, now I can start actually really thinking about what freedom means, you know, and then I was indoctrinated into a culture and a system that was really highly patriarchal, you know, with this own system of abuse um, and lack of care. You know, um, I was like, oh, this isn't it either. <laughs> but the essence was there. The essence of the practices is what changed my life. And so now entering into this practice of decolonizing practice and saying, how can I actually practice in a way where I'm seen in the same way Tibetans are seen in their practice? I think we have to experiment. You know, I think that we have to do this really hard work of figuring out how to create practices that speak to where we're at. You know, to get to the essence, really, the tantra is about essence. It's about the heart of things. The rituals, the practice, that's all that's arbitrary. It's like, what can you do to get there? You know, that's what I'm interested in. I'm interested in energy. I'm interested in actually awakening this, these parts of my body, and my, these parts of my embodiment that are dormant. And I want to figure out how to do that, but not take on these cultural trappings um, that often lead to abuse and violence. So that's, that's one part. That's the first question. The second question is... Um, um, what was the, oh, what's the second question? <laughs> the embodied liberation. Yeah, uh-huh. How do you, do you... Do you have uh, ones like the, the Tara oh, yeah. meditation, but bringing the whole body in? Yeah, like, I mean, I try to do that with everything now. So not just Tara, but the earth meditation, the seven refuge, sources of refuge practice is one of those. Um, so that's in development. That's like... That's what I'm experimenting with. But if you want to connect to Bhumi Sparsha, so Bhumi Sparsha is um, the sanga that I'm helping to create. It's a justice-centered tantric, uh, a justice-centered tantric community. Um, so Bhumi Sparsha, B-H-U-M-I-S-P-A-R-S-H-A. Bhumi Sparsha means touching the earth. And .org is the website. So you can go to that website. It's not much, but it's a website. And so that gives you a little bit of background on what we're doing. We have our first retreat coming up down south where we're actually taking this practice of chun, which is an offering practice, body offering practice, and then using that to work with racial trauma in the south. So like going out to like places of violence and doing this energetic work with the practice. So that's the experiment. So how do you do that? Because that's what we have to deal with in America is race. You know, everything is race in America. Because that's how America was created. You know, so when we say it was not about race, it's actually untrue. Until we create a new version of America, you know, this is what we're dealing with is the issue of race. So why not have practices to just go to the heart of that? You know, that's the heart that we have to heal is that of racialization. So stay tuned. So go to there. You know, stay tuned. Sign up with us, and we're gonna. That's where a lot of our work is going to be released is through that vehicle, through that sangha. Yeah. I'm having a really tough time with forgiveness. A okay. really tough time. Okay. Um. I, I've actually been taking your advice and creating separation mm -hmm. and spending more time with myself using art has been an mm -hmm. incredible tool for mm -hmm. that. Um, I think it would be for everybody, but mm -hmm. also I came from a South Asian family where art was not permitted yeah. to, be d to be done. So yeah. it's like on many levels, it's been really helpful. Okay. But um, 
I found I've lost like almost all of my closest white friends in mm. the last two, three years. Mm. People I've had in my life for over 10 years. Mm. Um, some of them, most of them left me when I started sort of checking them on certain mm -hmm. things that really hurt, that I sort of let them get away with yeah. for a long time. Yeah. You know, so it's sort of owning up to that on my side as yeah. well as like yeah. them. And then some of them um, I had to let go of because yeah. I realized that um, they just weren't showing up yeah. in the way they should. Yeah. And um, the thing I'm struggling with yeah. is the space between. Like, how do I know when it's okay and safe to bring them back in? Yeah. Or how do I know never to bring them back in? Uh -huh. Or yeah. it's like, how, how can I trust my own judgment? And yeah. so much of that is intellectual yeah. and experiential. Yeah. But, uh, and uh, that is its own kind of work. And yeah. I do that amongst my friends of color, yeah. amongst my queer friends and yeah. these things. But yeah. the... There is something that is just entirely energetic between two people. Yeah. And trying to sort of reckon with that connection that I've made with someone over a decade or more. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, I, it's how do I know that it's a small thing to just mm -hmm. let go of? How do I know if it's a, it's a huge thing that yeah. I should just say thank you for the time that I've spent with this person yeah. and just move on? Right. How do I know whether or not to do? Should I honor their journey in some way because they are also suffering and hurting in their yeah. own way to be able yeah. to to make this, you know, this to do this thing to me? Yeah. Um, how do I know when that moment is, and what do I do with that space? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, those are really hard. That's that's what happens when you start like actually asking yourself what you need and sometimes the people that we're around actually are not conducive to what we need. You know, it's like there's a, for people of color, particularly, you know, those of us who are, you know, in terms of intersectionality, we're kind of veered towards like the oppression, you know, we find ourselves doing a lot of work for people. <laughs> and then you get to this place where you're like, oh, I'm really tired. <laughs> You know, and then it's like, okay, let's, you know, we have to clear, <laughs> you know. And sometimes it's not intentional. It just happens. You just stop. You lose the ability because you're so overwhelmed and shut down. You lose the ability to take care of people and do their work for them. And you just stop doing it and people get really upset. You know, it's like, why aren't you taking care of me? You know, why are you calling me out? You know, and we were talking about whiteness, you're just like, you're, you're bumping up against that fragility there. You know, that lack of capacity to actually be with discomfort. You know, ask yourself, this, is this my work? You know, like, this is, is this what I'm being called to do? You know, or am I being called to really figure out a way to heal myself? Because that's what's going to actually create more of a loving relationship. You know, but you have to have discussions with people you have to have a conversation where you're like i want to be in a relationship with you you know because i love you and i care for you but i can't do all this work you know that like i i can't do x y and z and i need you to kind of show up I, I feel like even that conversation is work though yeah and that's what i'm struggling with is like i can't yeah. do, i don't even want to have that conversation with you at all because I had an email from one yeah. of these friends, in fact, who mm -hmm. all it said was, I miss you. Yeah. And I'm like, okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. That's about you. It's not, a, you, you still haven't acknowledged yeah. anything about what pain has done to me. Yeah. And to me, so for, if that is the approach that after six months, eight months go by, mm -hmm. the, there's still the, the place where you're at is, I miss you. Like something is missing from my life. Mm -hmm. I don't even want to have to have that conversation with you. Then fine. Really? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, I thought you kind of like, you know, I want to like do a little bit of work. But no, it's like, it's okay. It's like, you don't have to do all this labor, you know, because there are other people who are actually doing the work. You know, when I think about my white friends, I'm surrounded by white friends who are like, 
Like they get it, you know. Mm-hmm. Like I know I have white friends who are like doing a lot of extra extra work, and I'm like, okay, wait. <laughs> <laughs> You don't have to do all of that, you know? <laughs> I mean, that's a blessing, right? <laughs> you know, because they're also really open to feedback as well. So when something does arise, I'm like, oh, I can kind of offer this feedback because I feel like there's like this thing happening and they hear it because they're working on that fragility. It's like, it's not, they've let go of that. They're just, they're just like, okay, I want to be with the discomfort. I want to hear. And those are the relationships that you really need, you know? One okay, yeah, thing, if I, I, think, I think this relates to a lot of okay. people. <laughs> um, good. Um, I will say also the reason why I feel like I have to keep engaging yeah. is because of my own economic privilege. Like, I was mm. born and raised in white English middle class suburbia. Like, I didn't get this accident from nowhere. Okay. And so I also feel like because I've had proximity okay. to such close proximity to whiteness, uh-huh. that it is a responsibility that I have to keep stepping up to and presenting on behalf of lots of people, you know, not for, for myself, but also on behalf of like my, my friends of color who aren't yeah. in proximity of whiteness, or still absolutely uh-huh. terrified of whiteness, or yeah. just are not in those places. Oh. So I feel like. That's my responsibility. Ooh, you're the mediator. Oh, yeah. I think Ooh. most second-generation yeah. immigrants are mediators. Yeah. yeah. Wow. I don't know if I would put myself in that position. I have a lot of proximity to whiteness as well, too. But, like, you know, it's not my role to be the mediator. You know, yeah, I think that's the, oh, but I'm not like doing your work for you though. No, I'm actually not doing anything. You think I am. <laughs> um, I'm not taking on people's work. Like I'm just being myself, which is a different orientation. I'm just being authentically myself and my body and offering this and holding space but I'm not trying to make you feel good. I'm not enabling anything. I'm not beating around the bush. You know, I let you have your emotional experience, you know, and I don't apologize for that. You know, and nor do I think, oh, I'm representing, you know, I'm like the, the media. I just don't, you know, I just think that's too heavy to think about. It doesn't, you know, what are your, what do you need? What do you want? You know, are you, you want to be the ambassador? <laughs> you know, you're getting paid for that. You, is this your job? Because, I mean, that's a whole other thing. <laughs> like, just get your money if you're that said, you know. <laughs> but, if, yeah, good. Good. Okay. Okay. Yeah, yep. Okay. You, you, that can be your nook, but you can't do white people's work for them. But you're tired. So what's up? So what's really happening? This is really good. Just keep, yeah, yeah, keep going. Keep going. Um, yeah, I've needed to talk to you for like, Years, really oh good. yeah. Um, <laughs> um, I know I can do it. Like I've done it many, 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 many mm-hmm. times over. Yeah. I've like walked into, you know, I ca- canvassed for Obama in two thousand and eight yeah. in like yeah. darkest, most Republican, uh-huh. most racist, okay. like caught the corners of Philadelphia. Okay. And people, I walked in there and somebody laid a bet on the table and was like, I bet you're a dirty engine, (laughs) right? By the Uh end of the conversation, we are like hugging it out of the bar. He's crying in front of Mm -hmm. me. Mm -hmm. You know, it's always always like in a random bar in the South or something, (laughs) but they're always hitting on me as well. It's another weird thing. Mm -hmm. But Mm -hmm. um, 
it inevitably all they actually needed was to meet someone like me. That's it. I already know I'm amazing. Yeah. You just needed to meet me. Yeah. That's it. Okay. So if that's all it really yeah. takes, then I'm like, I don't do it with everybody anymore. Okay. I used to. Okay. And now it's come down to just the low hanging fruit. Yeah. That's where my that's where my energy level can can manage. That's where yeah. I can manage okay. that. Okay. You know? And that and really that only comes down to like where my mood is that day. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes. Yeah. I, that's all I can afford for you. Yeah. But I yeah. know that I can do it. Yeah. So that's why I feel like I, I have to keep going because I yeah. can't handle what is happening. Yeah. Oh yeah. I get that. So, I think, so what I hear you saying and what I feel, I think there has to be just a shift in your agenda. You know, instead of like, oh, I'm going to change you. You're going to meet me and change. I'm going to change how you feel about me. Instead, it's just saying, this is who I am. You know, and I'm going to let you experience who I am. But I don't care what happens. Like I'm not gonna like I'm letting go of the agenda. I'm not gonna try to make you unracist. I'm actually shifting focus to me and saying I'm just gonna be myself, and whatever happens happens. I feel like I do do okay. that. Okay. But it's the it's the sheer quantity that yeah. is overwhelming. Because you're still you're still outwardly, like you, it's it's like I'm not trying to prove anything yeah. intellectually to anyone yeah. anymore. Yeah. Like I don't I I guess I've <sighs> been that way. Yeah. You know I grew up believing I was white for most of my life, you know, assimilation is real. Yes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I don't do that anymore, okay. but it's the, the, the incredible, like, it's huge, it's overwhelming how, and especially in America, like I did not deal with this in this way in the mm -hmm. UK mm -hmm. at all. Like you don't get a choice but to accept your racial identity in, in the US. So it is... Mm. Before, it was something that was sort of, you know, compartmentalized yeah. in certain places or in certain environments. Yeah. And now it's like, in the words of my best friends, mm -hmm. who are gone. Mm -hmm. So, it's insidious. Oh, <laughs> it's yeah. everywhere. It's yeah. everywhere. Yeah. So, it's the, it's the fact that it's in absolutely, it's at work, you know, yeah. it's at work, it's. You know, and the same with misogyny too. I oh, do yeah. that as well. And mm -hmm. Well, you know, so it's it's not even like I'm gonna be me. Like I'm yeah. definitely at that point where I and have been for a few years now. Where I'm just like, this is what you get, and I'm amazing. <laughs> you know, so it's it's not complicated for me to change your mind, but it's the fact that there is it is everywhere. It's everywhere. Yeah. So you're also speaking to the reality of just racialization and racial trauma everywhere. So the so there's also the pressure just being brown in the United States as well. So this that's a lot of what you haven't addressed in your practice. It's just that the burden. You know, it's not just the work, so it's the burden. So you actually, as all of us do, <laughs> you know, it's about crafting these ritual and systematic things of, around self-care and self-preservation. You know, so it's, it's reading, for instance, Audre Lorde and taking that as your sacred and wisdom text right now. Or James Baldwin, you know. Um... For me, those were the texts. Those are my sacred texts, right? You know, some of my sacred texts that actually helped me to understand that, like, I have to ritualize my self-preservation in order to meet the ritualization and systematizing of, you know, racial trauma and, and, and white supremacy. You know, so I can move through the world. Yes, I yes, I feel the pressure, but I also have ways to disrupt that within my practice. You know, to decolonize myself in a way through this path. 
you know, the love, the compassion, the Tara practice, all of that is a part of that for me. Always letting go, always reminding myself that I'm surrounded by beings and resources and sources of refuge all the time. You know, when I'm feeling overwhelmed, offering that to the ancestors, offering that to my, you know, whomever I call to support me. You know, that's the ritualization that you have to do to survive the system. And then you get to this point where you're just like, what you say about me has nothing to do with me. And that disrupts so much trauma. It's like, I stopped believing in it. And then you will start attracting particularly allies who are just right in line with that. I can definitely feel them coming. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. This shift. But it's, I guess, trusting in myself part, knowing when to just let go. Yeah. Like when that moment is, mm -hmm. or if, or if I should do it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because the default has been to just forgive, just keep forgiving, 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 mm -hmm. forgiving, accommodating, enabling. That perpetuates white supremacy. Yeah. That's what's doing it. You know, you're calling things out. Yeah, there are consequences, but that's the undoing. But those are the consequences that people of color have to work with and manage. And that's why we need really intense rituals of self-care, communities of care, practices, everything. It has to be standard. And you need to be with POC communities doing this work and restoring yourself right now. I guess it just hasn't felt Buddhist to give up on people in that way. Yeah, yeah, that's the, that's the thing about Buddhism here <laughs> in America. It's also colonized. <laughs> <laughs> You know, like you can you can give up physically, but your aspirations can remain strong. It's like, yeah, I can't deal with you, but I want you to be happy though. <laughs> like that's how like when I find myself like just really unwilling, I can't go there. I'm like, but I'm not gonna give up on wanting you to be free. And then I want to return to that when I'm restored and resourced to do that. But if I am under resourced, then I enter into violence. That's when I started getting to the places of like, you know, you can just go to hell. <laughs> I don't want you to be happy. You can just die and go to hell. <laughs> you know, and that's what happens when you move past your edge, being under-resourced. And that's not, that's exactly what we don't need. You know, so we retreat back to taking care of ourselves because it extends my capacity to wish people to be well and free. Yeah, you don't have to be the ambassador, you know. And if you are, I figure out a way to collect a paycheck <laughs> to do that. Yes, Get some reason, you know. <laughs> you have to do your regular job, and then you have to be the ambassador in your free time. <laughs> I'd rather just be making art. Yeah. So yeah. That's definitely working. Yeah. Definitely. And yeah, more out, more POC allies, obviously, but. Yeah. Um, it's really tough to not embrace new white friends. They scare me. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, I don't trust trust them. Mm -hmm. Every t every time I try, you get hurt, get let down. Yeah, mm -hmm. every time. Mm -hmm. And I didn't grow up in that environment, yeah. you know. So it's very. I grew up in a very. I, I created diversity in my environment. Yeah as a lot against second generation immigrants do. Mm -hmm. So to not to have any kind of exposure is rough. Yeah. It feels rough. Yeah. But yeah, it'll take time. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Well thank you for that sharing. Sorry everyone, I hope that was <laughs> No, that was good. Thank you. You need that space, but we're over time now. I'm sorry. Um well, thank you. <clears throat> I guess that's it. <laughs> um, so
So we are, I mean, I don't know, like we won't be here again. You know, one of the things that's important for us to understand that everyone who's gathered here in this moment, in this time, will never be together in this way again. So I just want to offer gratitude for this coming together tonight and to, to hope that we've been affected, we've been affected, we've benefited each other um, and promoted each other's liberation. And until we somehow meet again, you know, maybe not in this life, but in our lives to come, may we always continue to meet, to form community, to grow together, to promote each other's liberation, and may we all just be free one day. Thanks, Lamarad, for an amazing talk and discussion. Thanks for everyone for participating in discussion and contributing such great insights and questions. That was great. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Visit our website, nyachambala.org, for all of our upcoming courses and weekend retreats. If you live in a different city, there's probably a Shambhala Meditation Center near you. Look us up. But if you are in the New York City area, our weekly Dharma gathering is a great place to pop in and say hi. It's every Tuesday night at 7 o'clock. Email us at podcast.shambhalanyc.org your questions, comments, suggestions. And, okay. Okay. Later.